Once upon a time, I told my wife that whenever I set out to make a movie, it was like there was a tiny glass bottle inside of me, and I had to pour a little bit of my essence out to get the film finished. I no longer believe that essence is finite, but I know the cost and the toll of being a director. It can drive you to the edge of financial ruin, sanity, and friendship. But as long as you don't go over, there's nothing like it in the world. I'm Tiller Russell. Welcome back to the dangerous art of the documentary. Alan Hughes knows this truth even better than I do. He's been making powerful films since the astonishing and tender age of 21. Menace to Society, Dead Presidents, Book of Eli, the list goes on. But The Defiant Ones was something different. It was a journey to find his voice as a solo artist without his brother. It chronicled the complex stories of two titans of the music business, Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. It was a difficult needle to thread, and it drove him all the way to the edge. But what I love most about Alan Hughes, along with his work, is how he handled Jimmy Iovine's request to fire his closest collaborator. He held his ground and said, we ride together. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Alan Hughes. Well, I'm, I am here, I'm all yours. Let's do it. Um, so one, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time. It's, uh, you know, a, I'm, I'm a huge fan and not just of the Defiant Ones and the Docs, but really all the work in your journey. But I have to say, going back and re-watching the Defiant Ones before sitting down with you today, I was just blown away at, you know, what an extraordinary piece of filmmaking and how fresh it was to the point that you were just making. Like, documentaries are malleable they're like flexible in a way that that feature films aren't really or aren't as much in anymore and i was just really struck by it, it was like dude this guy changed the game he changed the medium with this you know the, that's the thing i'm uh, proudest of is that because uh, as a so-called feature director like i but i'm more I, over the last 30 years more obsessed with documentaries like i'd rather watch a documentary than watch um a feature film and I can get lost more in a documentary. And I, and I also found that being such so obsessed with the medium, and I forget that my brother and I did American Pimp in 97, 98. It came out in 99. And that experience, and then going from like the streets, and then our next film was From Hell over in the UK with yep. all these uh, aristocratic type actors. And you're like, it was such a disparity in the experience, but it was a more personal documentary experience. But it occurred to me when I was making the Defiant Ones, I said, I said, this medium, and there are some exceptions as far as exceptional filmmakers, has virtually remained stagnant for the, the, the history of this medium, which is yep. the history of film. Yep. You know, film has innovated, music videos, commercials, television, but you look at three quarters of the, the documentaries that were coming out, they still were some offshoot of journalism, information, and how do we bring the how do we bring the cinema to it? How do we bring um, excitement to it? How do we reinvent and how do we innovate? Because without using um, hokey gimmicky things, people were trying to get me to do effects and get me to do animation. And I would go into the editing room and I would say to the team, I'd say, if we couldn't have done it on a flatbed 60, 70 years ago or 50 years ago, we're not going to do it. And, it. and it caused us to dig deep and find emotional innovation analog type innovation you know 
so 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 go with that like rewind to the beginning and like when you start coming to the defiant ones like what is the early genesis of this how clear are you about the idea are you pitching hbo like what all do you have what ingredients are you cooking with when you start a great question because um <laughs> i had dr dre i had done a music video with dr dre uh with eminem and i wasn't into doing music videos but i heard this song called i need a doctor and essentially what it was, was meant to be a first single on the Detox album, the much um, anticipated third solo album of Dr. Dre. And what it was, was the first two verses were Eminem basically cursing Dr. Dre out with, why aren't you our hero? Why aren't you making music? Why aren't you here for us doing what you do? You've disappeared. You've become like, you know, lock, the Loch Ness Monster of hip hop, you know? And I had never heard anything like that. So it gave me goosebumps. And I'm like, man, I got this music video because I know what to do with this. And Dre was on a third verse, <clears throat> but it was so innovative what M was saying and doing emotionally. I hadn't heard a hip hop track like that. So when I came on, I made it a career retrospective and I killed the new, the new Dre, the old Dre in the beginning of the music videos, that whole um, uh, Ferrari flip that's in the Defiant ones yep. comes from that music video. Yep, yep. So yep. Me and Dre, we reconnected. I met Dre when I was 19, but we reconnected on that video. Like when I say reconnected, we really bonded and we locked into each other. Even though I would see him over the years and had a really good rapport with him, we became real friends. Um, this was 10 years ago. And he saw what I was doing. He saw how I was working with him. He saw the themes that I quite ironically learned from Easy E who taught me a lot about theme, mm-hmm. you know, and like, what is the thing? What's the idea? And then we set out to make his life story, whether it was a feature or a television series or uh, whatever, a documentary. And then I landed, took about a year. I said, let's six months a year. I said, let's do it as a documentary. So I called uh, at the time, the president of, of HBO, Michael Lombardo. And I said, what if I told you, and I, this was just a call. I said, what if I told you I can get the most enigmatic, um, um, hip hop figure in the history of hip hop to open up about his life. He said, who? I said, Dr. Dre. He said, green light. I never heard the word green light in my life. This is 2013. Amazing. He said, green light. Yeah. He says, but we got one problem. I said, what's that? He goes, Jimmy Ivey just walked out of here with the Interscope documentary. Light bulb immediately went off. I said, I'll call you right back. Because I also knew Jimmy from 19, from 19 years old in the Tupac videos era when we were doing the first Tupac videos at Interscope. So I met Dre at 19 and I met Jimmy at 19 before they met each other. Interesting. Fascinating. Uh, I met Dre when he was in NWA. Long story long. And I had a record deal with Jimmy Ivey in the 90s as well. Ah, I love and it. a movie deal with Jimmy Ivey. So I know Jimmy, you know, and I, there was one of his, Tiller, you'll, you'll appreciate this because there's certain people in life where you could, they've never been on film. They've never yep. done anything, but you go, this person's a rock star and I know they'll translate because most people don't translate. I yeah. knew Jimmy would translate. And so I, uh, I called Dre. I said, yo, what do you think of this? Cause one of my favorite documentaries of all time was the battle over Citizen Kane, where yeah. you see the story of Rand- William Randolph Hearst and Orson Welles. And they're both prodigies doted on by their mothers. And then they collide and they destroy each other. This was the same thing to me. It's just, they collide and they make each other. So Drake wow. was yep. So you had all like so let me rewind even further. Yeah. So like you pitch Lombardo, Lombardo says green light go, mentions the Jimmy Iovine documentary, instantly you click call him and you so really you kind of have 
clarity of vision of this pretty damn quick. I mean, you cook on it for a long time, but then when you get it, you scoop the whole thing. 100%. You know, um, but it was one of those, I never have a problem of like finding the thing usually, like if if it's meant to be, I'll find a thing. And I'm, I'm leaving out one thing is that at the time you have to consider it was 2013. Everywhere you look, Beats headphones was like water and air. It was everywhere on every hot woman, uh, muscular guy, hip hop guy, square guy. <laughs> everywhere. It was a, everywhere. So when when Michael Lombardo said that to me, I went, this is the story. I didn't know that they were making a deal with Apple. Uh, I didn't I didn't know all that. That happened while we were making the first month of production. So, yeah, I started right away because I was telling some, someone this, Tiller, that um, sometimes when you do interviews for your, your films, like when I was going around doing stuff for Book of Eli, you know, I said, tell me what the story is about. And I'm like, oh, man, this is so fuck. Who cares? Like, just go see the movie, right? Because I enjoy making the movie. It's It's great, but, you know, we might talk about a lost Bible for I, who gives a fuck? Right. Like, go see the right. movie. Right. The fine ones, I I really care about all that stuff. I love all that music. I love all those characters. I love all that history. I adore Jimmy and Dre to a point. <laughs> you know, so that's right. what I brought yep. Doug Prey in. Like, let's keep this honest here. And but I could talk about it forever. So it was that easy that the, the, when you say the vision, it came right away. So, okay. So when you're sitting down and like, you know, one thing that's like specifically one of the many fascinating things about the film is, you know, you're working with movie star, you know, you're working with Denzel when you're doing Book of Eli. And then when you're doing docs, you're working with guys from the streets, you know, um, say, you know, an American pimp or whatever. With this, it's a weird, interesting hybrid, right? Because Dre is public figure icon sort of notoriously elusive cat and jimmy if not you know center stage in front of the mic has been the guy behind the guy for all these years and so there's a different kind of access point it's like it's not a it's not a movie star but at the same time it is a star so talk about like that fine line and kind of getting to performance when you're directing guys like that, because there is a thing where it's the authenticity that you're, that's so compelling about this. This is a great show with a great dude. I'll tell you what. (laughs) I love it, man. I mean, you can tell, um, you know, people always ask, you know, when you go speak or talk about whatever you're feeling, you're talking, wherever your colleges or companies and they go, well, what makes a great story? How do you tell, how do you, what's the ingredients that make up, how you know it's going to be a great story. And I always say a great character. A great character makes everything easy. It's innately part of, you know, Jimmy Ivey, when you see him, you go, oh, this is easy. This story's coming out. Because great characters um, are a walking narrative. Yep. There's conflict. There's drama. There's humor. Because, like, that's who they are. I mean, it's just, it's innate, too, in, in our culture, one of the things I'm fascinated about is like how academia has hijacked this notion of storytelling and writing, you know, like, no, this is an academic. No, it's actually, we even go back to Mark Twain and who he credits with, who taught him how to tell stories to the knees of slaves on the Mississippi who didn't yep. even know how to read or write. So yep. um, when you're dealing with subjects, that's the bottom line. When I first met Tupac, he was, a nobody at the table where I was meeting Digital Underground for one of our first music videos, mm-hmm. our first music videos in 91. I was like, who the fuck is this dude? Mm-hmm. Holy, he was funny. He was charming. 
he was I don't know what it was. You're just he was a star, man. He's he a, a star. Yeah. And that, you know, at the end of the day, it's like when you're doing the documentary medium, it's the same as features in one regards. Like you gotta have your straight men and your straight women, and then you have to have your color commentators. Yep. <laughs> you know, so and I think we I don't know if documentary filmmakers think about this as much as I obsess on. I'm like, yo, you gotta have both, you know, and and then you have your ligamental players. But if you don't I'm doing five parts of Tupac right now. And in that episode, there better be someone who's that dynamic and that unpredictable or I'm going to get bored, right. you know? And so, but when you're directing, I, I find documentaries, depending on the subject, because I'm empathic and I'm, and I, and I'm malleable, I'll, I'll become whatever I need to become to get that person comfortable. But I find that I direct with my face in documentaries a lot. You know, you're like, oh, you know, you're, I'm not putting it on and I'm laugh. And sometimes I over laugh. The laugh is real, but I get more gen- genuine with my laugh because I find that, I'll give you an example. Bruce Springsteen showed up like Clint Eastwood on his interview in uh, Defiant Ones, meaning you can't tell these guys shit, you know. They're not assholes, but. Right. They are who they are and they're going to be who they are. Straight up. And don't go saying this, saying that. Motherfuckers not come in. In fact, I had the camera rolling. He just. When we were ready, he just walked, sat down, and started talking. No questions. What am am I going to really, you know? So I eventually started asking questions. But, you know, he's locked into this whole Eastwood thing, you know, like one take, I'm good. And it wasn't until I realized he had a sense of humor and I started playing on that and really, really laughing. And one time I fell off the chair. And no one's impervious to feeling sexy through yep. humor. Yep. I don't give yep. a fuck who you are. Yeah, and it, true. It, it, I always it's say humor is human, but humor is the rhythm section. Mm-hmm. You know, laughter is the rhythm section. So as a director, I find that if, if they have a sense of humor and I could find that, all of a sudden now I got the tempo in, in my hands and I'm encouraging the right things through. It's, it's fascinating because I don't think most film directors, it's a completely different skill set making right. a documentary. Yep. But the, the one thing I got from my, my, my advertising background and my feature background and working with in music video backgrounds, like you better be there in service of who's you're shooting, who's the star. Yep. And even if it's a nobody, you better get them comfortable. And without being too long, the other thing is if you've got a list of questions, you have to keep in mind that when you show up with a subject that's never been on camera, that's a real civilian, and you got a list of questions with a, with a clip pad and a, and a pen, that's a threat. That, that's a, that looks yep. like you're holding a loaded gun. So it's adversarial, no doubt. I learned that the hard way. <laughs> right? yep. And put it down and have a conversation. And what I find is that when you're having that conversation in the documentary medium with the subject, you'll see, you'll start to feel if you're tuned into them. It's like fishing to me. Like, you know, obviously you're, you're, you, as a fishing person, you're going out, you're looking for, you're preparing for 50 pound tunas, 75 pound tunas. So your gear is geared towards max 75 pound tuna. And you can see in the subject's eyes, sometimes you'll see like a 350 pound tuna floating by. You go, you got to have the ability to throw everything out of way and just hook into that, that, that big fish, which you weren't prepared for. Cause it's, 
Well, that's the great both joy and pain of docs, right? Like (laughs) you don't know where it's going to go. And when it makes a wild ass right turn and it's better than where you thought, it's like, forget that old movie we were making. We're making that one. That's right. You know? That's right. How do you, by the way, I got to ask you a question. How do you deal with that? Um, It's nerve wracking. It's terrifying. It's, it's absolutely horrible. Like it, like sitting there laying awake at night and then, and it's like, it's shooting a movie is different, right? Cause you're like, you panic during the day, then you get through your day and it's like, you make the movie, you know, on set really like you're either getting it or you're not getting it. But with docs, man, it's voodoo. You're like cooking that stuff. And you're like, is it right? Do I need another two years to edit? What do I need? You know? And you don't know. You just said you're up at night. I was just having a production meeting yesterday. I go, I'm up. Three nights a week, four nights a week, I'm up. I can't go to sleep. And it's just every little thing. And I'm like, you're right. Because I think in features, it's all scripted. Not even just the words. Everything's scripted. Everything's prepared. Would you say the voodoo? (laughs) Yeah. Well, somebody once said to me, I think it was Errol Morris said to me, you know, or, or somebody said, the thing about docs is you're making a jigsaw puzzle but you don't have a picture. So you don't know what it looks like. There's 10,000 pieces and maybe you only use 500 of them. So it's like, how in the hell do you even begin? You know? And I thought like, that's right, man. Somebody yeah. write that down and send it to me so I can sleep. <laughs> exactly. I know. Me too. Me too. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's so brilliant. talk about working with Dre and like the specific relationship there. You've got like a real friendship with this guy and yet he's also your subject, right? And like, he's put his story in your hands. You know, there's going to be tough stuff that you got to deal with at some point, but he's also, um, you know, this is somebody that'll take, you know, go into the studio for 10 years and not release the record. So like, how do you, like, how do you play that relationship? I mean, how do you navigate that relationship on camera for the movie? It was, it was agony and ecstasy. So it was torture a lot because, um, you know, you still, you're, you're friends. And also he's a iconic, legendary figure that, you know, you got to respect that, but you also can't, um, be sweet about all this. Like there's some, there's some blind spots here. There's some rough spots, you know? And I think part of it is just gaining that trust as you go along, however you can do that. And Dre was, uh, I think more anxious than Jimmy about it, even though Jimmy was anxious because he had more landmines to navigate that, mm-hmm. you know? Sure scenarios um and um the thing i learned about him that they both had in common and i think that's why the movie has the velocity it has outside of my personal ambition to bring cinema to it and make it driving yeah yeah and there's no difference you know i was saying this back back then like the eyeballs that are going to be ready for these things are the same eyeballs as series limited series and films we just need to get the entertainment factor there in a legitimate way so what I learned, what they taught me, and this is just through osmosis, is that if the scenes were honest and they were entertaining and, for lack of a better word, like there's this like thing that gets achieved where it's like punk rock, where it's like, ooh, that's undeniable. Yep. And it's provocative and it's evocative and it's visceral. One thing I learned about Dre is he understands that shit. Even if even if seemingly it's a scene that's shitting on him, he goes, wow, whoa. And that that was the advantage is that he comes from essentially a punk rock background. Yep. Hip-hop, NWA, you don't get more punk rock than that. Eminem, you don't get more punk rock than that, right? Yep. Um, Snoop Dogg and that whole run they did with the crime. So he understood that, that, that thing. And I think if it wasn't for that, I'd be dead because yep. it wouldn't have worked. 
You well, know? he under he understood the language and the medium and the need to like make it entertaining, make it shocking, take you to an unexpected place, which as an artist is what he does. And as a producer, that's what he's doing for other artists. Right. right. So you're you're speaking the same language. That that's way. right. That And that, by the way, I, I, I was surprised that that's what it was. This was a revelation along, along the way because it was difficult. There were sometimes things that he was severely uncomfortable with. And I got scared, I almost cried one time, you know, because I, I was really precious about this shit. Mm-hmm. There was a moment where he meets Jimmy for the first time, him and Suge, and they bring him the Chronic album, and then the needle drops in the Chronic album, and you see Dre in what I call empathy cut was one of the things that we yep. uh, developed. You see Dre just uncomfortably like sitting there like this because it's one of those moments you don't use. It's and an Jimmy asked me a question. Yep. And then you see another close-up of uncomfortable. You see. You see the you see the neurotic ticks in him, yep. you know. And I remember when he first saw that he he raged on me. I mean, he raged. He was like, "What the fuck is like? Get that out of there!" I'm, I I literally I remember that was the, that was one of the moments. And you, you, here you're talking about a technique that that I used throughout. But the reason why I almost cried is that I knew it was groundbreaking in the emotional innovation of it, and yep. I didn't want to lose it, you know. Yep. And ultimately, the funny moment was, and to your question, a lot of this has to do with the family members, too, who are involved. Like, his wife was always present when we would come talk about these things, mm-hmm. as was Jimmy's, um, who's at the, at the time was his fiance. Sitting in the room while you're doing interviews? Not during the, not during the interview, but like when we would come discuss things like, mm-hmm. this is what the scene is. Here's what I'm thinking about it. I want to show you something so you're not surprised by it when it's in the cut. Though Dre is wife was always an asset because I remember when we had that confrontation about the empathy cut, he went to the bathroom and Nicole turned to me and she says, Alan, is the reason why you're so precious about this is because it's, it's an intimate, it's revealing like intimate emotions in a way. I said, exactly, Nicole. And she was always very good. Like when I left the house, I knew she would be an advocate. She's going to, she's going to horse whisper Dre. (laughs) So um, that's fascinating. How much are you screening for these guys along the way? How much are you keeping the edit to yourself? How are you navigating all that? Yeah, that was a, a week by week thing. But I always felt like, and, and that's why I brought my, my partner, Doug, in, Doug Prey, because he makes, you know, these raw dog docs. He's not, there's no stars, no fluff, no, no fluff, yep. peaceness to it. And Doug edited um, – uh, American pimp, and I knew what a great cutter he was, and I knew he has a he, he, and he has a professorial mind too, and he teaches documentary filmmaking. So I said, this guy is going to be my like control, you know, like yeah. that. That's why I'm, me honest. I mean, I go, yeah, keeping me honest. Is, is this? I you know I don't mind crossing the line, but I actually I like to know where the line is. I like someone to go, no, you just crossed over the line, and I go, why, why, what, what? They tell me, and I usually take one step back, or depending on what it is, I might go, no, we should cross the line right now, right? So he was there for, for that, amongst other things. He's a brilliant uh, filmmaker. Um, but I'm this editing and writing yep. with me. Yep. Um, so I would show Jimmy and Dre quite a bit along the way because a lot of it, keeping in mind, they just made the Apple deal. Yep. And a lot of this is like stuff that you can't show in the 11th hour because it might unspurl the whole thing. You know. Yeah. And, if, it, if it blows up your movie, you got to know early so you can recut it. But I'll tell you one example. We were a year into making this thing 
And we hadn't cut anything. And I was nervous. And Doug was doing so old school. He's doing all these dialogue character uh, strips on the wall. Yep. You know, yep. Like, yep. Um, and um, God, I don't know if I should say this on the microphone. Uh, I'll say it. Because <laughs> uh, Doug, Doug knows now. Um, <laughs> excuse me. Jimmy was wise enough every weekend. He would say, what documentary should uh, me and Liberty watch this weekend and why? I would say, watch Cocaine Cowboys this weekend because it shows you, like, when something's moving, the velocity of it. And yep. it doesn't matter what story you're telling. As long as you keep it moving, I like the energy of that. Watch The Fog of War because I like this guy dealing with these things dead on. You yep. should see that, Jimmy. So every weekend I would tell him to watch something. One weekend I said – Watch Doug praise uh, Surfwise because I think you should be familiar with Doug and how raw, like why I, I, I like him to be here. And uh, Jimmy saw Surfwise <laughs> and he did not like it. Uh, Dude, and, I love that movie. I love I that love, movie. But I think he was, I could, I know what he was responding to. He goes, this is a bunch of old people being lit like shit. What the right. fuck is this? So I went and saw uh, Jimmy the next day and he goes, and keep in mind, I just interviewed Doug Morris, his mentor. Mm -hmm. um, so when he says to me, I think you should fire Doug, take him out. I was like, we should take Doug Morris out of the movie? He goes, no, Doug Frey. <laughs> Hilarious. So how, do you, so, how do you, so how do you navigate that, right? Because like, you know, I just saw Malice in the Palace. I don't know if you've seen that thing on Netflix now. But there's this moment in there when, when they're like talking about the fight. And, and one of them says, hey, man, we ride together. Like, and, and it was like, and that's how it is, you know, at a certain point, like with your collaborators, that's your dude. And that's the dude that you're entrusting to carve your movie out of the that's right. footage. So how do you, how do you navigate that? When, well, when I, Jimmy's like, I am, to your, to your point right there, like I'm diehard. Like if I'm riding with someone, I'm riding with someone over my, my, when he, Jimmy said that I'm like over my dead body. So we'll blow this whole thing up over this, if this is what it's going to be. And this is, and by the way, if, if I had to listen to Jimmy, but this story goes a few beats further and it, it tells you everything. But if I had listened to Jimmy, your whole thing is contaminated. Now you're, you're, you're finished. doesn't matter how good it is at that point. You're, you're done. You're finished, you know. And I don't, I, it's just not legit. So what I did, because it was a year in and we hadn't had any scenes cut, I literally went back to the editing room and I said, Doug, I didn't tell him what Jimmy said. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I said, Doug, we need a hit and we need a hit now. And I said, so the only thing I told Doug was, I want you to take the Apple deal where Tyrese does the Crip Walk. Yep. And I want you to take this Nine Inch Nails track and put it up front and then have this Nine Inch Nails track come in right here. And when that guitar riff drops, when it drops, have Tyrese Crip Walk on that guitar riff. That's all I said to Doug. He went in one lazy Sunday and what's in the film is what he cut. Yeah, it's amazing. And I was when they like, nail it, they nail it. Holy yeah. shit. And I had never felt or seen anything like that in the documentary because it's a modern thing, deal. Had been done. Money. Yeah. And, it's, and it had that cinema, the yeah. thing I was looking for. And so I go, okay, I don't need anyone to tell me this is hot. I'm not one of those guys. This is, this is dope. I don't have to show a bunch of people. Um, so I decided to go show Jimmy. Now, to your earlier question, this is what tells you everything. I'm on my way to tell, show Jimmy this opening sequence of the Apple deal <laughs> being blown potentially yep. over some real hip hop bullshit. And um, I called Doug. I said, I'm going to see Jimmy. And I'm nervous that 
you know, this guy doesn't, you know, this could, this could be the end of this documentary, you know? Mm. Doug says, well, better we find out now. Yep. I go, so Jimmy, he's silent the first time. I was on a DVD mm-hmm. and um, he says, show it to me again. I show it to him the second time and he grabs me out of the excitement and he stops himself. And I go, I got this motherfucker, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and as I'm leaving, I say to myself, I said, Alan, just leave, take your, take your DVD and leave, just drop the mic. So I'm leaving. I said, Jimmy, can I, can I get my DVD back? And he goes, maybe I should hold on to this. <laughs> and just this weekend, he told me, he goes, you know why I did that? Because that's the demo. That's the demo. Artists always go do other shit to the thing. And the demo usually has the magic. That's why I kept it. He showed everybody, by the way. Oh, and I love what it. Happened, a week later, he wanted to come to the edit to meet Doug and see, you know, what we were working on. This, there's only two times he came to the edit. So he came in and there was our other editor, Lasse Yarve, who's off the charts brilliant, but it was like his first few weeks. Here's the thing I love about Jimmy. First of all, who in his position would have loved that? Because he just got the album. Like, that shows how punk rock Jimmy is, yep. right? Yep. No one would have done that in his position. Secondly, he walks into the editing room. I don't exist. Lasse doesn't exist. He's treating Doug like he's Eminem, literally like he's Eminem. Like, he, Doug is here now to, to Jimmy. And that's one of the things I love about Jimmy. He just tunes every, he goes, who cut, you know, he knows who cut it. So he hones right in on the dude. Locked in. like a rock star. Yep. Yep. So, great. But that lets you see the lines, that whole bullshit story I just told. A lot of hardcore documentarians be like, well, I wouldn't have done it. I would like, you don't get access like this at that level with shootouts like that, with that type of money on the line, if you're not in a constant negotiation. And a collaboration, right? Collaboration. It's, it's both a negotiation yeah. and a collaboration. And it's always getting renegotiated and re-collaborated, Larry, where it's like, okay, what's the lines? When do I need you in? When do I need you out? When do I need my independence? When do I need your partnership? That's brilliantly uh, assessed right there. <laughs> That's what it is. So like when you start to structure in the edit, right, because I think another one of the like masterpiece, you know, that things that makes this a masterpiece is how beautifully and perfectly structured it is where you're like, okay, we're going to start with that open and then we're going to go back and we're going to tell the intersecting stories of these two guys that are titans in their own right that have these commonalities in what they do you know they're both producers they're both working with stars minting stars making stars but they come through these really different paths when do you sort of crack okay it's the intersecting arc of these guys and how are we going to weave it and what are the handoff points like how do you guys crack that i think well the, the first part the most difficult thing in that in that thing you were talking about the collaboration and the negotiation was Jimmy and Dre, for two years of the three-year process, refused to let me make it a multi, multi-part series. Huh. They just thought it seemed e- 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 egomaniac, narcissistic. You know, I, did, I said the subject can't dictate that, so they kept trying to. In, 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 and by that matter, HBO wasn't a weird buying because they negotiated the life rights. So for two years, it was. This is. I knew it wasn't one part, so I'm cutting. I'm almost cutting because I said to Jimmy Ivy at one point, I said, if it's one part, it's just going to be an elevated version of VH1 behind the music. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can get into any real emotionality with two guys with that kind of history. 
So as I'm cutting these narratives and you look at some of the pieces in there and the reason why I'm digging so deep, whether it's the nine inch nail section or the NWA section, or even when the deal, one of my favorite stories that the guy, the DOC, who's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi of it loses his voice. The, the reason why I'm going in the way I'm going in is because it's a hat trick. I'm trying to pull out like it. They start falling in love with these little Lego pieces here. There's going to be no choice as far as the mold. It'll blow their that mind when, they, when you when you when you pull all the way out. It'll blow. Their yeah. Mind. So that's so, okay. It, that, it I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it wasn't till you know. And here we go again with the nerve wracking part of the documentary. But it wasn't till like the third act of the creative process that we started doing all the back and forth and what comes what and when comes when and how, where do we do the handoff. And that wasn't nerve wracking because we had the pieces. So mm-hmm. it becomes fun for at a certain um, level. But Doug, me, and Lassie, when we were in the final stretch separated where Doug was finishing one, two, and three. And then I took Lassie to Ojai, California to finish four. Mm-hmm. And yep. what happened when we were in Ojai was um, – uh, the movie was like three months from release and I kept scratching, like scrapping, like part four. So it was, we were writing like page one outside the Eminem story, page one rewrite three, four times over right up into the premiere in LA, Los Angeles. I remember going to the premiere, there were billboards out. I'd never been a part of anything. There was billboards up and you're not done with the film. And, um, I remember HBO execs going, oh, my God, we saw part four because everyone was waiting for part four. Yep. It's fantastic. Oh, I'm like, oh, you don't know that. That's not the part four. We're, you know, <laughs> so that's how last minute I kept telling them, I said, four is coming in wet. Four is coming in wet. So what's presently currently four was probably cut one month before release all the way up until release, you know. Mind blowing. So what, what, why were you rebreaking four so much? Like, what was it in four? You know, and that, and how did you land on what you landed on in episode four? I think it was like a feeling that that because if you look to like the other part of the, the innovative part that I was proud of is like every every credit sequence. It occurred to me on the Netflix now that people just skip credits, and who gives a fuck about a credit sequence unless it's hella dope and no one really makes many so how about this we're wasting time we're wasting narrative time here so why don't we use the same song same credits and part two it's going to be the nwa narrative so we're not wasting time but we have the same vibe and part three uh jimmy with the bear and then jimmy's background and same music same credits then part four i was like i was like man we have to like i don't know what the word is for like just blow the lid off this thing. Fuck the credit sequence. Just doing openings. It's just, it needs to change the tone because outside of the last artist story, we have Eminem, which is the last artist story. Now Michael Corleone is, that's Dre, is no longer in the service and no longer civilian. He's coming into the family business and he's essentially becoming Citizen Kane is what we would say, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an isolation in that. And there's a, and there's also like, this is, you know, there was some some of the critiques we were fortunate enough to get great reviews, but some of them were like, well, part four turned into a beach commercial. That's what happened, assholes. <laughs> that was that you was know, the world. Yeah, that was the story. It's exactly what happened. The whole world was a beach commercial, right? Um, so I just wanted to tear it down and isolate it 
and and get it more personal and more raw and more um like Dre, there was a moment with Dre in the boat where he's on this yacht and he's Dude, alone. I love that. That shot is so beautiful. And you actually yeah. use it in one, right? Isn't it somewhere yes. in the top of like when we first meet him, it's out on that boat and it's misty and it's rainy. It's like spectacular. That's it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And uh, and you feel the isolation then, right? But my guy kept cutting Dre in the boat with all his guys in the studio. Dre with the – I kept going, no, 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 nothing, nobody. You remember, see that, remember that shot with him and the sun setting right there? Remember, like, nobody, no one can be around. And, and that's what it was. It was like a feeling. And I'm forgetting now, outside of the tech of Beats and Apple, and Jimmy had that personal thing. And more importantly, Tiller, I was really not into this concept that we've seen and no one had innovated this. How are we ending this? Yeah. And typically what happens is, oh, you got the parade of celebrities going, Jimmy and Dre is so great. Here's the thing about, you know, and you, well, they summarize that's the, the journey. That's the predictable ending, right? Yeah. And it was Lasse uh, who came up with, no, this is about the audience now. This is about the lessons here. This is about how to how to reach this this type of success. How obsessive. How you got to think over and over again. You're the underdog. You're the. I said this is brilliant. Here we go. Goosebumps. Like you know that was what was taking time. Like what are we leaving the audience with? That who gives a fuck? We know these guys are great. Let's. It's not about them anymore. It's about the viewer. So this is the, these subtle things, and I just I'm just trying to find that that balance in the writing, and and make it less complicated. It just. Yeah. Do, you, do you have any idea what you're getting into like editorial is like, man, this is going to be like a three year undertake. Like, do you know how, how sort of monumental this is when you go in and do you ever hit a point where it's like, dude, I'm lost in this shit. Like some, like, how do I, like, where is the, where is the finish line? Well, I'll, I'll confess one thing that I don't mind confessing. Like I, I, I had suicidal ideations during the making of this, you know, and I didn't know why, you know, and, and I'm not a suicidal person. I, have, mm-hmm. I think that's like out of the question, right? But mm-hmm. ideations is different. You just wish you weren't here. You're not yeah. planning anything because it had tapped my central nervous system so bad, the process of it, and it was so all-encompassing. But I also knew as a filmmaker, I started in this business when me and my brother, even though we come from a, a privileged background, but underprivileged, under, you know, privileged background financially, and um, um, scholastically or whatever. Um, when we did our first film, I remember, you know, we, we were fortunate. I just remember when, when people respect you in this business, what that feeling is and what gets done when there's respect. And for whatever reason, you know, and a lot of it has to do with oneself, you know, and your own condition that had, I just didn't, I just didn't feel like that respect wasn't there. And, and I, so this was like, um, for me, this film, right when the inception of it, I could taste it in my mouth. I knew, I knew what this was. I go, I know what this is. And it's not just a documentary because I had agents that were telling me you're wasting your time, you know, on a documentary. And I go, no, that's not what this is. And it wasn't just because of the guys and the subject it's because of my ambitions for the medium and what they always have been for the medium, you know? So, um, it was to me um, like of like uh, the last shootout. Like I was gonna shoot every bullet, exercise everything in my filmmaking arsenal, everything in my soul, 
because I knew that if this didn't work, I was probably going to go be a monk in Thailand and eat vegetables the rest of my life. I mean, literally, I just, I just can't do this. It's hard enough to navigate this town and this entertainment industry, but I just, there's so many assholes. Yep. <laughs> and the only, the only way to mitigate that is obviously a hit, right? Yep. Obviously having vision, real talent, whatever. So I saw this as like a swan song of sorts. That's, that was my mentality. Like this was a, this was like a suicide mission. That's, wow. that's, that, that's how I came at it. And I became aware of it during the process of making it. And there was a breakthrough moment I had uh, artistically in Lasse, my partner, he um, showed me the um, Senna documentary. Yeah, um, it's amazing. And there was that moment in that documentary where the race car drivers were talking about like, see, there's this thing he did where there was that two seconds or that second he would take that lane on the shoulder. That's a suicide mission. And all of us would just go, you, you, you can't believe he's getting ready to do that. You, you go as far as you can, and you back up. And that's how he, that's why he was who he was. That opened my brain. I'm like, whoa, there it is. Like you have to be willing uh, to, to take it there. And people can feel that, whether you're an actor or writer. I don't think you should do it every every film when you're wrong. But if, if if you want to be felt, you you you. I know it sounds dramatic, but I do I do believe it. Like you have to be willing to die for it, you know, and not lit not, not literally, but sometimes literally, you have to be willing to die for it. Because well, if you're not, you know, who, who get you know, like it, it, no one's gonna remember. No one's gonna. What are we What are we doing? Why you know? And everybody knows and feels and respects that when it's like this motherfucker will go to the end of the earth for this. There is no doubt about it. And everybody can like feel it coming off you. No matter what, right? Athlete, actor, architect. I don't give a fuck. You know, yep. That's right. Yeah. Well, and what's really interesting, what came up for me as you were saying that is – in a way, that perfectly ties in to the theme of the series, right? Which is like these guys were so uncompromising and so relentless and so single-minded in the pursuit of, you know, whatever the vision is, whether it's Jimmy getting his first gig producing and like, okay, man, I get to be behind, I get to be behind the console this time to wait a minute midway through like, okay, you're a master at this, but like, Hey, really what I am is an entrepreneur, man. Like I haven't even started my real game yet. And it's that, you know, him obsessively in the bathroom, however many hours a day it takes to do it. Like those are the people that get there. And that's what your movie's about. And it, it, it's, a, it's about um, taking obsession and, and fear and channeling it the right way, right? And it's about reinvention. That's the thing we all had in common. I really, people have a, some people have a problem with reinvention, that concept of it. And that's, that's what you talked about with Jimmy and he done it a bunch of times. And you see, Dre, you see that what the commonality was in them is they weren't afraid to go, oh, this is over. Now I'm doing this. And and I connected to that. I connected to that. And and also, like, some of us, you know, it's this thing of, like, method actors. I think there's method writers. There's method directors. There's method music producers. And I become, I get in and I'm eating it. You know, and you become, so you become, I'm already obsessive anyway. So I'm like, all these themes, there's that thing tell her about someone said about um you know when those artists used to paint those great men and women 500 years ago and the subject you know the 
the paintings done and it's, it's more revealing it reveals more about the artist and the subject than final portrait yep, yep that's and right. i think if you're doing your job that you know it is about these guys but you're breathing all these things and these things and if you're paying it and by the way whether it's in you or it's in the air and you're taking it and you're learning you know trust me i went i felt like on that journey i went to harvard yale princeton yep i learned so much so hum- humbling yourself to the to the i didn't know some of the things that you were saying earlier about the process, I just wasn't aware of it, you know, but you have to humble yourself to that process and go, shit, this is whatever you thought. It ain't that it's this. now. (laughs) And so how does it change your life as a filmmaker? Suddenly you get to the other side of it. Right. And, you know, that was one of those films where it's, you know, instantaneously you had changed the game. Like in a moment, it was like, okay, nobody's done this before. The medium is different. You are reinvented as an artist and as a filmmaker. And like, where does that leave you at the end of it? You know, when you come out the other side of this crazy ass voyage, you know, where does it leave you and how are you different? Well, it left me in recovery for 30 days, (laughs) literally, literally. Um, like that thing came out in July and I got a note from my mother. Uh, she said, Hey, you said you were going to, you know, and I didn't have any substance abuse problems at that, at that point. It was a bad habits, central nervous system just tapped out. I was dependent on Xanax to sleep. I wasn't, I couldn't dream of doing anything like that during the day. So I knew I did, I wanted to get off that, but mostly quite frankly, I've never said this before out loud, but I went to recovery to hide from Jimmy and Dre for 30 days. Ah. <laughs> I went to recovery uh, literally two weeks after Defiant Ones was out and it was still airing. And I'm in recovery in, in Malibu and thank God it was like a place that dealt with Eastern and Western mm-hmm. together and mental and physical. And and there was a, I didn't realize I just needed, I, cause I tried to go places tropical to unwind. I just needed to know that there was like a nurse on call. To, I just, needed that i don't know how crazy that sounds but no to spin it down to spin down the central nervous system so it's like hey man i got like i can pick up the phone and like you know like it that's that's whatever it takes you to get peace man you know it's funny to tell her i was i was walking on in this beach in malibu it was kind of a private beach because the 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 tide comes on either sides of these mountains and i'm walking like my second day there and i saw this rock and it, and it had like when the birds shit and make the rock white. And on one ledge was a black bird sitting out looking that way. And on the top ledge was a white bird looking that way. And I was like, oh, shit. I, didn't, I said, Alan, no, no, stop making movies. Stop, stop making movies. Like, so that was the first thing. But I'll tell you, it, it was just what the doctor ordered because I got my independence. You have to also keep in mind, I made my name with my brother. Mm-hmm. And that's complicated as any, any rock group yep. it would be complicated. And just to just to get back to my voice. Um, and you know what? Right now, I got to tell you, the inspiring thing is that I always tell people, like, the things I'm doing now, the films I'm doing now, the deals I'm making now, the company I'm building now, I'm like, who would have thumped off a documentary? So it's all like the, off, off a little thing called the documentary, you know, and that and that is the most inspiring part that I can impart on anyone is like your agents, your lawyers, whatever. There are people on the way that just, again, they kept saying, no, nah, you wasting your time on a little documentary. And you go, no, nah, I know. It, and, and, it, and it had little to do with the subject. And it had a lot to do with the subject. But it had to do with, like, I know this thing is, like, this close. And that was that joke that um, 
Louis K uh, said at the Academy Awards a few years ago about the Hondas and the Toyotas, you know, the documentary competition. I'm like, that's fucked up, you know, but it's a reality. I mean, I, yeah. I appreciate the joke. And, um, but it changed everything. It changed my, I, I didn't realize that I lost my confidence. You know, it's like an athlete, artists and writers and filmmakers, it's the same thing. Your reps, your, 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 your confidence is everything. And, yeah. and um, I think I, it, it, it changed my life. I remember Jimmy Ivan calling me up three months before it came out. He goes, you know, this is going to change your life, right? Your whole life's going to change. I'm like, yeah, that's one. That's like one of those moments. I just was like, yeah, I, I actually know I could, cause we knew what we had before it came out. You could, because yeah, you of could him. the other thing was unlike feature films, there's something very personal about docs, something very personal to me, more personal about doc, personal about documentaries. But when you have these three minute portions of, of the film, I would take them to many different disparate type of rooms with women, men, black, white, midgets, giraffes. I don't like, I show the same thing and I would, and again, that empathic nature of mine, I, I didn't need people to tell me so much. I could feel the common things that people were responding to emotionally, the humor, I could feel their excitement. So I knew what I had. But it, that wasn't why I was doing it. I was doing it because I go, there's a, there's, we may all think differently, especially now, but we all feel the same way. We all have the same feelings of love and fear and love, whatever it is. And I was obsessed now going from room to room to room with this scene, that scene, you know, early in the making of it, just to see what people responded to. And it happened to be, it was the greatest gift because these were stories about, you know, of finding your voice, finding who you are, becoming who you're meant to be. So there's all these things that everyone wants to know anyway, you know? So it was a game changer for me. Yeah, man. It's uh, that, that, and are you, so when you're doing those screenings for these small people, are you small groups of people, are you spinning the knobs on like dialing it in further or do you, are you just like taking it in? Like, okay, I know this works. Now I'm onto the thing. Like, what are you getting out of those little uh, timing. timing, timing and comprehension? comprehension like some people for instance uh, i'll try not to get racial here but you know when you get into the nwa section the early cuts of the nwa section i could tell people they weren't comprehending it and i i go why are they not comprehending it i was trying to figure this out and i said oh we got the wu-tang clan problem it's too many niggas on stage right now (laughs) (laughs) i'm confused you know and so now you have to isolate you know and that's why when we meet mc ren you see a roadrunner and i talk about the roadrunner you, you have to earmark, this is who this guy is. This is who this guy is. It, it, and it's a tribal thing. It's not a racial thing, really. You know, it's like the general public is not going to know who each member of NWA is. So you have to spread it out. And the music's got to be right. And the non-music's got to be right. So that's the things I was studying. But a lot of my technique is obviously timing, but comprehension. Because mm-hmm. I noticed, and my editors would get really pissed at me. Because if there's something in the, in the frame that is like red over here. I go, get, get rid of that. I'm like, why are you? I'm like, cause my eyes go in there now. And now I just missed what he said. So I'm paying attention to all that stuff. You know, my mom, we would, we had a rule in the um, editing room. If grandma doesn't understand it, it's got to go. So that means if my mom or any of our moms didn't understand this narrative, then it shouldn't be in this movie. 
Grand, so in, it's it's so interesting, right? Because like the movie is so dense, right? And you've got because your audience is worldwide, you know, all socioeconomic classes, racial backgrounds, is everybody, right? That's tuning into it, and people can only take in so much so fast. And there's the like, okay, new piece of information, dimes got to drop. You got to you got to track where you are before you get the next piece. And all of that, you know, as you're talking about it, it's like you're spreading something a little bit thinner. You're slowing it down. You're letting him in. And all of that makes all of the difference. And it's so much more complicated in docs because in a feature, it's just like, OK, we're going to add another beat on the reaction shot before this line of dialogue. But you're, you're you're pounding so much information. And what you did with this film is it's so dense, not only with story character music it's many many layers the audience has got to take mm-hmm. yeah know? and that and that comes to also um frequency i'm a sonic guy too like it's frequency like okay if there's i mean right down to it whether it's a, you know the another uh, technique i've developed on this thing which i'm going to use in the marvin gay film because i haven't seen it much in features is we would get some of these classic tracks that were the original track that Dre maybe had sampled or whatever. Uh, Funkin' for Jamaica was one of them um, by, um, I got the group escapes me, but the guys are like hooting and hollering at the beginning. They're like, woo, hey man, this thing. I go, man, I, I need to get the, the multi-track on this because I need to take that out because I need, it's distracting right now. I, 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 I absolutely, I noticed you doing that, stripping things down. And, and I was like, so I guess, what has he got? Like the pro tool session or like, how is it? Like, it was so interesting because it really is. It's so carefully crafted, but that, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Right. So, you know, I was like, ah, so we pulled that track. It hadn't been baked before. So it had never been digitized. So they, we had to pay to get it baked. They brought it in and I go, Oh, so we could take that out right, and we're scoring the scene with the, just playing the track. And then towards the end, when Jimmy is the Malibu football games, he's walking in and they were like, he was never off. He was always on it. I started stripping it down to just the, um, what is that thing called? The, the heart. Yep. Uh, and you start, I started stripping back, stripping it out, like minimizing it as the scene went on and it became a score. I said, all right, this is okay. So when it came to Marvin Gaye, when Dre was mixing the Marvin Gaye, I want you. I did the same thing up front. And then later in part three, when we got to the terror of death row and what was going on, it was just Marvin Gaye going, oh, yeah, beautiful. And, you know, I go, what the fuck, man? Why, why haven't we thought of this before about us as filmmakers and cinema? And, um, but my point is, is that everything you just said, as far as separate, you know, spreading and timing and this, and there, but frequency it's something we don't talk about a lot, like True. the fidelity of things. And because I, 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 gotta, I just get bumped and I know when I'm getting bumped, but I can look in the room. I can tell when grandma is bumped because. Yep. Cause they're out. And as soon as you, you lose them and they're out, then it doesn't matter because you've lost them. And, right. and, and you got to, it's like, you got it. You got to, you got to reel it back in. One, one other thing I, I remember too is, is, you know, as the film's going, you're clocking. Now I have hope chunks you know i'm showing 50 minutes you're clocking you're clocking you're clocking and it's like a prize fight like jab 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 and you you can see throwing up a cut right here and that means something absurd that keeps the audience going whoa oh shit it's something a little um not pc too mm-hmm. <laughs> you it'll know snap that's a, it'll snap them yeah 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 it's just all those little things that 
I love, I don't know, on Tupac, it's a little different. It's a different, uh, I'm, I have a different dilemma on my hands, but, you know. It, well, that's the thing is each time, dude, it's a different dilemma. That's why we're awake at night because like it's never the same problem and it's never the same solution, right? I'm coming to see you in New Mexico and I mean that too. <laughs> Do it, man. Do it. Let's take a walk. Yeah, we're, we're, we're due. Um, all right. Well, let me, I want to wrap with one last, I mean, I could, I got like hours more worth of questions for you, but I want to wrap with one thing, you know, kind of to take us to the end here, which is, the music is so brilliantly utilized in this. So I want you to talk for a second about score, composer, you know, it's Atticus Ross, like in the like decision-making that's involved and sort of what your direction is to the composers and, you know, what that process is for you and when you do it in the, you know, is it just at the end or when do you do it? What do you cut? Um, I prefer get some sketches before we start. You know, and fortunately for me, Atticus Ross, we already have an 18-year relationship. And our relationship started in the Nine Inch Nails realm anyway, because I attempted the television show with, he eventually went on to become the Nine Inch Nails anyway. So then win his Oscars with, with Trent. Um, so, you know, when you when you look at the opening of the Defiant Ones, the first two music cues are um, old Nine Inch Nails tracks. Yep. You know, yep. and... Um, so he knew, but he had a, him, his wife, and his brother, Leo, Claudia, they do the music together. And um, we had an interesting challenge that we hadn't faced before, which is the score has to be here to service all this other stuff, classic music too, and can't get in the way. Of, so that, like, that's a, a, a different dilemma. The thing I love about Atticus and is he he works harder the next time around. He he's always he tells me like, "Oh, we can't do that again because people are mimicking that that sound now and we got to do this." So, I find with Atticus we have we'll sit down for 5 hours and we spend about an hour talking about the work and 4 hours talking about life. And he's one of those artists that and Lasse, my 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 partner Tupac who was an editor and writer on on um Define ones are similar. Like I find that we we talk about work a third of the time, um, and more of is other stuff that they're you know like it's it's the work, but it's life. And I I rarely have to tell Atticus anything like specific outside of like oh it should feel like for instance on um, Book of Eli he'll hate me for saying this I think you know um, uh, the Denzel Washington film I said I want the opening title sequence to feel like Blade Runner. And I said, sorry, Atticus, meets uh, new age music. He goes, no, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And he's so he's such a storyteller, as well as Claudia and Leo. Like they Cla- Claudia is like brilliant with these changes on the on the chords and, and the movement on the chords. And Leo is like this world class. Anytime you hear that guitar sound in ways it hadn't sound, that's his brother Leo. But they, how do you say it? Like, I don't have to tell them much except for like. Oh, I want this to be bitter, feel more bittersweet or music boxy or it's, it, I usually talk in caveman terms, you know, but we knew on that one that, that the music needed to have the analog quality of the thing we're coming out of and going yep. into, you know? Yep. Um, and, um, but, you know, it's interesting because Nine Inch Nails was woven in there a little parts too. There's this great cue that I love is called, um, uh, 
the um I'm sorry, Leaving Hope. And it's the last track of part three, the whole Tupac. Once Tupac gets killed. I know the track. Yep. Oh my God. It's amazing. You know, so there's that nice nails track there from yesteryear. And then later we put in the uh, no earlier in that in that uh, part when it's the um uh, uh Time Warner versus Interscope, we took a track from Social Network, which I would never do because I don't like taking contemporary things, but I'm like, this is exactly this was the temp. Don't even try to replicate this attitude. Like, when it works, you know? it when it works, it works. And and like what you proved with this series is there's no rules, man. Like, like, does it like peel your face off? Yes, it does. So like it works. Um, yeah, you well, know, one, one other thing too, before you, before we round out, I give away one of my little secrets and I, cause everyone makes this mistake. Like when you're doing a documentary about hip hop or black culture, people tend to play hip hop. It, it, it cheapens it. it. You play. So anytime I, I'm going to be crude right now, Mark Wahlberg, uh, um, one time was going out to do a take in a film I was doing with him. He goes, Alan, and he's, he's running out to do the take. He goes, he goes, do you want me to white it down or black it up? I said, by all means, Mark, black it up. <laughs> he understood, he understood the cut. And what I mean by that is like, there's that, there's scenes in here where like the beautiful people sequence, Mm-hmm. There's a lot of black mayhem, hip hop mayhem going on in there that really works back to the Tyrese Cripwalk. Why that's dangerous because that's like a real heavy Nine Inch Nails riff over a particularly notable hip hop black yes. moment. Right? That's right. And if you take the same approach with like real great black music or compositions, I- iconic music, and play it over something white, it it. So I, I'm biracial. That's the other thing I loved about this 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 thing and the defiant ones, you know. It's like, you know, if it's too white, cut it with black. If it's too black, cut it with white. And guess what? We all, we all, I, I don't like that idea where like one is cooler than the other. No, 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 no. This all, if you find that that thing, it they all one needs the other at some point. And I mean that even sonically. A white story is gonna sonically need some black influence to really take it to another level and vice versa. So that's such a beautiful note to end on because I think what you're saying is it's this combination that gives you the cognitive dissonance, right? Like where it's like, Oh man, I'm seeing something, but I'm hearing something that it's opposite. And these are all these tools that you can play. And what's so brilliant about this series is, okay, it's sort of about music. It's sort of about friendship. It's sort of about entrepreneurialism. Like it, there's, it's so rich in its complexity that it's more than one thing and it's more than the sum of its parts. And what you just described in terms of the choice, how black, how white, what way, you know, what's the scene, what's the music, it's that richness that is like the art of a brilliant filmmaker and you just like perfectly encapsulated you know what you do and what you did in this film and i just love it man man i pre i pre, i appreciate the you know just the, the heartfelt um detail of, of your curiosity because that's everything right now you know i mean with all of us like how curious you are about the thing is how good you're or great you're ultimately going to be and we you know, we're losing that curiosity. And I, I just really appreciate your genuine, like, you know, emotional 
intellectual artistic curiosity because it makes it makes you it makes you think about the, the things that you wouldn't otherwise think about either like you know so I, I i really appreciate it well thank you man thank you for your time and i do want to sit down in person either i'll come to you when i'm out in la or you come out here and sit down with me anytime you want but i think you and i may have some work to do together we do we do and and that's no bullshit i want to i want to sit with you because there's Something that came up, I won't mention that your name was attached to. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. That would be great. Um, and I'm with it. I would love to see what you pick your brain. Uh, you got uh, far more experience in this tortured medium. <laughs> Let's do it. We'll, 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 yeah. we'll do we'll do a proper sit down and we'll do the, we'll do the offline version of this. That'd be great. Thank you so much for the time. Outstanding, man. Thank you so much, Alan. You'd be good. Keep making great art, brother. You too. Thank you to Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine for sharing your stories with the world. Thank you to Snoop and Springsteen, Trent Reznor, and all the others who came out for this film. And thank you to Alan Hughes and Doug Prey for making a masterpiece. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller, and the sound magic and mix comes from Nathaniel, post-up audio in Los Angeles. Music by Zydepunk. Additional guitar by Steve Pagliaro. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Bradley Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Please don't forget to subscribe, and thanks for listening.